Hello, everybody. Welcome to Live True. My name is Drea Dalzell, and this is my podcast where I share about my life, my experiences as a mom, a wife, and a human being. Last episode, I gave a brief introduction about myself and touched a little bit on some current events. Um, In sharing that message, um, I figured I would touch a little deeper on some of the darker parts of my life, which a lot of people that know me today don't either know about or um, have a really hard time believing. Um, As I mentioned, I am a recovering alcoholic. I have been sober for 10 and a half years, and it is because of my drinking and my love for drinking and driving. And I did mention that I absolutely do not condone that action, but it was something that I did and I did very often um, that landed me in county jail twice, that landed me on house arrest for 60 days, And that landed me in an Arizona state prison for four months. I think looking at me and seeing me as a mom with two small girls um, living in central Minnesota, people find it really hard to believe that that is my past, but it is. And I want to talk a little bit about that and the stigma around incarceration and how that system has been flawed. It continues to be flawed and um, the impact that it is having on certain demographics. If I recap my experience through the criminal justice system, I would say that yes, I eventually learned a lesson But my lesson did not come from being incarcerated. My lesson came because I made a decision. It came before I spent my time in a state prison that I decided to get sober. Um, It was a blessing that I was sober prior to those four months because what I experienced in that prison was a lot of pain and suffering and a lot of women trying to get sober Um, having withdrawals and experiencing something in such harsh conditions and an environment that is not conducive to healing, that is not conducive to self-improvement, that is meant to shame and continually um, throw people into a power struggle dynamic. And for me, I was very blessed that I had a year of sobriety under my belt before I had to turn myself in and start my four years, four year goodness, my four month sentence um, for my prison stay. But it did take me through county jail, which is, I hate to say it, 10 times worse conditions than a state prison or a federal prison. Um, And it took me uh, house arrest where I had an ankle bracelet and I had a um, alcohol monitoring device in my home where I had to, yes, I had to blow and report my BAC levels uh, constantly throughout the day. It sounded like an ambulance coming through my house when that thing went off and you should see me 
bolting up the stairs to blow and make sure that I could pass and that I wasn't drinking my sorrows away at home. So I mentioned that this, the reason for my, my sobriety did not come from the punishment of the criminal justice system. Um, I spent two and a half weeks in Tent City. If you do not know what Tent City is, please Google it. Google it, please. In Arizona, there is a city full of tents, thus the name Tent City. Outdoors, Arizona, desert, hot. Yes, exactly what you're thinking. Um, in the middle of a summer, living outdoors with military-type tents and no air conditioning. Um, you're sharing a communal water trough pretty much and only allowed to get it at certain times of a day. So if you don't um, portion that outright, then you could be in serious trouble um, living out in the dirt. And it's, it's as awful as it sounds. And that experience was when I was 20 years old. And there were a lot of girls. Um, and I say girls because there were some young people there. Um, that were there for the same reason I was drinking and driving, drug use, shoplifting, you know, misdemeanor items. And then you had people who were there for longer terms or awaiting sentencing and um, kind of a revolving door. I was lucky to have work release Monday through Friday. So I was able to leave, go to work and then report back at night. Um, and my dad would come and pick me up and drive me around town because I didn't have a driver's license. Um, and I just remember that feeling in my stomach every time we had to head back. It was that nauseating. I just felt like my life was coming to an end. It was it was the most... I I really can't put words to the feeling of being in that place. I really can't. Um... It was demeaning. You can't treat people like that without taking the humanity out of of a, a group. We're treated worse than dogs. Um, you're punished for every little, um, every little thing, any rule that's not followed, anything that they think is happening, you're punished and you lose privileges that you don't really have. Um, and I think the biggest part about this that I have a problem with in this entire topic is taking the humanness out of people and treating them less than. Because here's my experience. Going in and out of county jail and the prison system, a large, large percentage of the women I came in contact with were incarcerated for seemingly petty offenses. There was a lot of immigrants in county jail that got picked up when they were just simply trying to work and provide for their families. Little old ladies, little old grandmas who were the sweetest things in the world. Yes, I understand they broke the law by coming into the country illegally. I get it. And I'm not here to have that conversation at this point. But there was a large amount of women each time I was in for immigration, waiting for ICE to take them back. 
cross the border. Then you had your younger crowd, such as myself, with DUIs, drug offenses, um, sick people. Sick people who were trying to wean off of alcohol, who were trying to wean off of drugs. I think the most traumatic thing that I had seen were people uh, withdrawing and detoxing from heroin. You don't want to see that. Sick people, I tell you. You have people who were arrested for shoplifting. I mean, people, I'm, I'm not kidding you when I say I met people who were stealing food. Yes, I get it. We broke the law. And I'm not saying that it's okay. What I'm saying is when you think of prison, there's this stigma that these people are horrible people who must be punished. Send them away. And that is not the truth of such a large percentage of the people that are locked up. It's just not. There are so many people who could be high-functioning members of society if they had opportunities. Let me fast forward a bit to my four-year. Um, I keep saying that because that's what it felt like. Four-month prison stay. Uh, you know, I think people in prison looking at somebody who came in for a four-month, because four-month is pretty much one of the shortest amounts of time you can spend unless you're, like, offend- reoffending on a on an existing charge, breaking parole or something. But I think people hated the four-monthers because they would basically just show up and one day they're gone. Um, but in that experience, it was a lot different. Because at this point, people had been sentenced and were receiving longer terms of punishment. Um, you're getting felony charges. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a game changer. Yes, I am, a, I am a felon. So if you're asking that question, yes. You could likely look me up and, and find my mugshot. It's horrible, so don't do it. Um, but I am a felon. I did lose all of my rights that I have successfully... Um, I've gotten those back. It took a while, but yes, I did finally get those back. But yes, felon, had no rights. And I remember the pouring of support and love I received from my families and friends. Like I said, I was about a year sober when I started my prison stay. And during that time, I was so invested in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I... My big book, if I show you my big book, it is highlighted. It is, I literally had to cut off the spine and put a spiral in it because it was falling apart. Um, I have a strong foundation in that program and that was what saved my life. And I remember every time it was time for mail call, I always had mail every single day. One or two pieces. Very rarely was a, did I not have mail. And I was the envy of my yard because... I had support. So many of these women did not have a support system. To say I was blessed in this community is a unbelievable understatement. I don't think they... Ca- I, let me backtrack. When you think of a small child at story time, sitting on the floor in a circle with their teacher showing them a book with all these pretty colorful pictures... That is what I felt like when I opened my mail. 
people just wanted to hear what my family and friends were writing to me, trying to imagine what it felt like to have somebody who gave a shit about them. Because for many of them, that was not part of their story. They were alone. They made choices to be in gangs and to steal and to do drugs, not out of complete choice. It was all they knew. The first few days, weeks that you are in prison, at least in in the prison that I was in, you go through a process called RNA, where they assign you, you know, the level of of, um, possible danger you have to others. Um, And you can be a one through level five. And an aggravated DUI will get you a a two, which puts you on a low-level prison yard with other offenders who have either served enough time and had good behavior that they've moved down security or with others with very similar offenses as yourself. So I was in with other drunks, other drug addicts, and a lot of theft, a lot of um, assault, um, those types of things. And I remember my bunkie is the term that we used when I arrived. (laughs) She was about 15, 20 years older than I was. Badass, just old school chola. Nice as can be, hilarious. We got along great, but she shared with me her experience. She was a gang member. And the stories that she shared about surviving in her neighborhood were heartbreaking. And to her, it was so normal to talk about arming yourself with guns and knives and stealing people's property to survive. We, this is a funny story because I had, when I lost my driver's license for my third DUI and my car was... Um, taken away I had a bicycle so I could get around town right and I was living with my cousin at the time and I remember him calling me I was out and he's like please sit down and I'm like what he's like I was home I heard something but I didn't really respond right away and I look outside and your bike somebody stole your bike and of course I wanted to be mad and I was like you know what I was getting sober so I'm all on this you know pink cloud and I'm like god damn it Somebody must have needed it more than I did. Fast forward to my time in prison. My bunkie is telling me about the things she used to do. And she's like, you know, I finally found out that in these, you know, nicer parts of town, you could make a lot of money flipping nice bicycles, like those specialized bikes. I mean, I can make some good money. She's like, I used to take them all the time. She's like, and she's telling me these areas And I looked at her and I'm like, she described the exact area I lived and I told her my experience. I'm like, I swear to God, if you stole my damn bike, we're going to have it out right here. And she laughed so hard and she said, you know what, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. When I get out of here, I'm going to steal you one, a brand new one. What do you want? And we laughed about that for forever because that was the type of humor that you had. But, you know, she did what she had to do to survive And somebody with a criminal history, somebody who was raised in a community that knew nothing other than... She didn't have any skills. She was very street smart, intelligent woman on that level. But she didn't have any skills, 
reading and writing at a, I don't even think she passed the eighth grade equivalency exam in the prison, which they give to you upon um, your arrival so that they can give you appropriate jobs within the system. I don't even think she had that eighth grade equivalency to read and write and do mathematics, but she was street smart. She was wise. She understood business. She understood concepts that you learn through lived experience. And I think that was the part that I started to realize is there's a different level, a different skill set of these women. I mean, they were survivors, okay? When we talk about... The structure that keeps people continuing to repeat these offenses offenses and getting them stuck in the prison system forever. It is so heartbreaking to me because through my experience, I met some amazing women who were so powerful. And if they were given a single opportunity, would be a game changer in this world, especially in this country. Powerful women, strong women who had so much determination when it came to providing for their children, when it came to putting a roof over the head and food on the table. But they didn't have the opportunity. They didn't have the education. And I'm not saying they're all victims. I know I'm going to hear a lot of that. That's, that's not what I'm here to say, because I think ultimately we, we create our own destiny and um, we have to be responsible at a certain point for the choices that we make. So yes, we are responsible for that. And each of those women were equally responsible for the situations they were in. However, when you look at it at a demographic and and the areas in which these people live and how they were raised and the family dynamics, the abuse, the trauma. How do you expect people to be survivors and succeed in a world that provides shit? Your education system is shit. Fathers are in prison. Mothers are prostitutes and gang members, drug users. What do you do? A lot of these girls were oldest middle children trying to raise their younger brothers and sisters and doing what they had to do or leaving the second that they could so that they wouldn't be stuck in that community and then still got trapped into it. You know, I I could tell you story after story, listening to these women pour their heart and soul out to me. I swear I arrived onto my prison yard and I became like this therapist and people just wanted to open up to me and it was it was my gift of going through that situation because I got to experience something that I, I wouldn't trade for the world. It was awful being away from my loved ones, but that experience has shaped a lot of the person that I become. And it is a constant reminder of why I refuse to allow my disease to take over my life. I'd be letting down too many women to do that. And I'll tell you what, I keep in contact with a handful of them. A lot of them are back to drinking, to drugging, just to dysfunction. There are a few survivors who are living a a good life these days and there are few of us 
I refused to become a statistic for that reason because I had opportunities. I had a community that loved me and supported me through this. And I sure as hell wasn't going to take advantage of that. You know, I had a story that was very symbolic when I was in prison. So I knew that you couldn't have eyeglasses that contained any metal in them. I'm blind as a bat and wear contacts. And so when I went to my court appearance, I made sure to wear my glasses and I made sure they were plastic frames and they were plastic frames. But I remember when they were going through my physical and, you know, I was getting ready to almost start to move on to the next process. And they called me back in and they had me sign this form and it was a property release form. And it said eyeglasses. And I'm like, what's this? And she's like, you can't keep those glasses. They're going to you're going to have to have somebody pick them up. I'm like, excuse me. They're plastic frames. She pointed to a tiny metal piece on the hinge that rests right above my ear and then confiscated them. Okay. Young girl, blind as a bat, prison for the first time. I'm in tears, panicking. I, I want my mommy, okay, at this point. I couldn't see. I couldn't see anything. I saw shapes. I saw, you know, people that were standing, God, less than six inches from my face. I could finally see their features. I could walk around, but I I wasn't seeing anything clearly. And that was terrifying. And I remember the day that my dad finally was able to get me a pair of glasses, eyeglasses sent. And I picked them up and I remember putting them on and I was bawling my eyes out. I could see clearly for the first time. I saw the little granules of sand when I looked down at the ground. I looked at my friends that I, you know, faces and just said, that's what you look like. And I was so elated because there was clarity. Like I was going through one of the most traumatic times of my life. But because of that damn AA program, I was like high on life because I was looking for every positive thing that I could, I could find. And I was trying to make the best out of this experience and putting those eyeglasses on was a reminder of good things coming and that I was literally getting my eyes. I was seeing life for what it was. This was part of my journey. I was here to make an impact on someone. I was here to learn something or two. And I made a vow to myself that I was going to do all of those things. I helped women get sober. I helped walk them through the steps. I introduced women to yoga and meditation. I talked about family and community. And people asked how I got sober. People, Because nobody was sober in there. They got sober in there if they even stayed sober. We went to AA meetings together inside, which we only had about once a week. And I shared my story. That's what I did. My experience, strength, and hope. And I shared it with each and every one of these women. And they were forever grateful. Because I planted a seed. And whether they chose to use that again, we are responsible for the choices that we made. Whether they chose to use that or not was on them. But I grew. And my heart grew. And my compassion for people, even through the criminal justice system, grew. And I started to see a flawed system. 
I started to see something that was meant to be shameful and meant to take away power and meant to take away the humanity in in a human being. And today when we talk about the incarceration system being the new Jim Crow, a way to segregate, strip people of their right to vote based on demographics. It angers me. Because if we gave an ounce of focus on rehabilitation efforts, as we do to putting money into our prison systems, or the effort to privatizing these prison systems, we would actually start to look at what I have started researching a little bit of is transformative justice. Transformative justice is where you see the harm done and instead of only punishing or rectifying for that particular harm done, you go to the root. To transform and to pluck out that bad seed. You can look at statistics of families who end up with members incarcerated due to um, fathers being incarcerated and mothers being incarcerated. So a parent either being out of the picture and behind bars or being killed out on the street. Low-income areas with poor educational systems, with poor housing opportunities, with poor health benefit opportunities. You look at the availability of resources for healthy food. (laughs) You know, things are designed a certain way. And if you haven't experienced a culture or a community outside of your own, I encourage you to either start researching or driving around town because there are areas where you don't have a Whole Foods or even a grocery store for miles and miles. You also have communities that have healthy food options, grocery stores, co-ops. That doesn't exist everywhere. You have communities where it takes a drive to find the liquor store. You have communities where a liquor store is attached to every single gas station and fast food option that you can find. Where bail bonds are more more, um, common than uh, a convenience store. Discounted divorce, divorce lawyers and criminal lawyer advertisements instead of whitening your smile and buying a new boat. If this is unfamiliar to you or you don't know what I'm talking about, again, I encourage you to hop on the Googles, the interwebs, and, and look at what these other communities and these differences based on demographic demographics are. So... Back to my experience, I was lucky enough to pass the eighth grade equivalency exam, so I was awarded with a 
lovely five cent raise at a proud hourly rate of 12 cents an hour working in the kitchen. Oh, the glamour of it. I'd woke up at uh, 2 a.m. <clears throat> and would pre- prep breakfast for about 200 inmates every day. Seven days a week. I'd work from about 2 a.m. until about, oh, anywhere from 10 a.m. to noon after cleanup and such. And then um, I would get a little bit of quiet time to exercise, attend the the weekly AA meetings. I celebrated 18 months sober in prison while other women were receiving 24 hours, one month, two months, three months. And the look on their face to see somebody who has such a length in their sobriety. Again, I felt sort of like this outsider, even in a place where I would have thought I belonged because I was a drunk. And still, there was something different. And I had this attraction to the people because of my delight that I had from sobriety. I don't take credit for that light whatsoever because it's not us as a as a as a being it it is our energy it is our it was sobriety it was the gift of sobriety it was doing the hard work and letting that shine forth I did 90 meetings in 90 days um in my first 3 months of sobriety sometimes more than one meeting a day. I did the retreats. I did the women's meetings. Let me, let me break that down real quick because I did not like women very much. I got along better with men. All of my friends that I would party with and drink with were guys because there was so much less drama and there wasn't that competition. But in my sobriety, I found women as the powerhouse. I found the ability to relate at a different level that I couldn't. In fact, I think my draw to surrounding myself with men in my drinking career was the detachment from anything emotional. In my drinking, I had two emotions. I joke, I was angry or over the top happy. There was no in between. And I was kind of manic in that sense super high highs, super low lows. And as I got more and more sobriety under my belt, I started to level out some of that emotion. And actually, I was quite emotionally inept. I didn't learn much about processing emotions, handling emotions, knowing which emotions I was feeling for that matter until I was an adult going through um, the 12 steps. It was actually a lot of the work that I did the first time around doing my 12 steps was pinpointing the actual emotions I was feeling. I wasn't allowed to use the word anger. Everything made me mad. So I actually had to start naming different emotions. I had to start naming these different feelings. And it was really hard 
because I didn't, I couldn't differentiate this energy that was bouncing around in my body. Fast forward into prison and I realize now what was so attractive because I saw it in all of the men and women the second I walked into my first AA meeting. These people who were laughing and smiling and just had this calm about them. They weren't up and down all the time. They were people doing the work. And they were people who showed up when they didn't want to. They told you when they were having a bad day. But then they were able to look through it. And I talked about emotions not being facts. That was one lesson that really changed my life. I used to function solely on how something made me feel emotionally. And I wasn't able to just pause. My first sponsor used to tell me, you know, it's the difference between reaction and response. Like a firefighter responds to a fire. They don't react to a fire. They're trained to think through the process and handle the situation by responding. And that's literally what I've had to do with my life. I've had to retrain myself from reaction, reaction, reaction to, okay, where are my tools? What am I feeling? That's the first thing I have to understand if I want to address something non-emotionally is, what am I feeling? And once I can feel that and name it, I'm able to go into my handy little toolbox, pick out the right tool, apologize when I'm wrong. We all love to apologize, don't we? Oh, goodness, my dog doesn't, apparently. Um, Right? We all like to apologize? Not really. Um, I found that I actually don't mind it. I really, really like to be right. I really do. I'm never going to lie about that. But I really like being able to call something what it is. I have come to terms with being wrong. It might take me a day or two. But when I can finally understand why I reacted the way I did, and I can actually respond to the situation, there's so much growth there. Because once you start apologizing to people and you say, I'm wrong, it's not as scary as it seems. You're not going to lose a piece of yourself because you were wrong. You're not going to become less than. The person that you're apologizing to doesn't get all the power. In fact, I feel it's the other way around. When I can admit that I was wrong, here's another lovely saying from my sponsor. I step out of being the expert where I'm very limited and I remain a student with a lot of options. And somebody like me who likes to continue to learn and grow, I want a lot of options. I don't want to be tied down to responding only in one method. I don't want to be the person that can't start over and try again. 
But most importantly, the thing I've learned about saying I was wrong is I get to change my mind. This has actually caused a rift between my husband and I a few times because he's like, you know, one minute you tell me this, the next you tell me this. And I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. I changed my mind. (laughs) You know, I think we forget as human beings that we can do that. Just because yesterday I thought it was cool that, you know, sure, go out and hang out with your friends or go out and do this activity and then come that day and I'm exhausted and I have to now watch two kids by myself and I'm like, I'm sorry, I I can't. And I'm sorry I lied, but I'm tired and I need help. And you know what? I get to do that sometimes. And sometimes on a greater scale, I get to change my mind. I get to change my mind about how I view myself. Thank God. Because if I just solely um, relied on the disgusting image of myself that I had back in my adolescent years, I'd be screwed because I hated myself in so many ways. And today I kind of think I'm a cool chick. Got a spunky sense of humor, you know, I'm kind of fun to be around. I'm slightly a pain in the ass and I'm really OCD when it comes to cleaning things. But when it comes down to it, I'm a pretty good time, right? I get to like myself. Um, And I don't really give a shit if anybody likes me back. And I think that's the better part of it. I mean, sure, I want my husband to kind of like me once in a while. I want my kids to really like me and think I'm super cool. And um, But otherwise, it's like, take me or leave me. You know, I, I, I'm so proud of that feeling today because that wasn't how it was. Every decision I made was based on what I thought you thought I should be doing in that moment. And that is not the case anymore. Live true. Live true. I will repeat it over and over again. I will shout it from the mountaintops. Live true to you. That is my mantra. Authenticity, vulnerability. Those are big words. Big words, big concepts, terrifying if you've never done it before. I have so many people that are like, oh my God, Dre, I love how open you are. I wish I could do that. Thank you for sharing that. I could never do that. You know, I love how you can just put everything on the table and good for you. I relate to this. I could never do that. Yes, you can. But it's terrifying at first. It's terrifying to say I was a victim of sexual abuse. It's terrifying to say I'm an alcoholic and I'm a felon and good God, all the horrible things I've been through. It's terrifying. But once you say it and you hear somebody else say, oh my God, me too. That right there is the meat and potatoes of being a human being, people. It's where we relate and build real friendships and relationships. That is where we need to focus on living. Not on this surface level. Where I walk around thinking I am only a brown-skinned girl. No. I want to live in a world where I see myself as resilient, as a survivor, as an intellectual, as a compassionate human being. And I want to be able to acknowledge that in you. Can you imagine what a world would be like if that's how we saw people? If we didn't have to be right every single time, or at all for that matter? And if 
we could say I'm wrong. And I'm sorry. So that's my challenge for you. Can you identify where you've been wrong and call it what it is? Maybe take it a step further. How does that make you feel when you say I'm wrong? And if you're so brave, telling a person that you may have wronged, that you were wrong and you're sorry, watch the power that you feel in that, the transformation. It's beautiful, I tell you. And with that, I will leave you with those pieces to ponder. And I hope you take this message with you moving forward in all of your relationships. Remember, remain the student and give yourself more options. Because when you're the expert, you are so very limited. So very limited. And that, my friends, is where nobody wants to be. In a world limited of choices options and opportunity we want to live in a world of infinite and it starts with the way we view ourselves have a wonderful day and i will check in with you guys again next week bye